0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my friend Aaron Cariati for a conversation about his new book, The New Abnormal. Aaron is a psychiatrist and he is MD and a very interesting intellectual on the questions of ethics of science and their relationship to a society that is more and more coming under a health-based despotism. We will be talking about what's been going on over the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic, with the reasonable and the mad things that have been done, and the system that is being developed by trial and error, as well as by certain kinds of institutional design, and what this might mean for American society, what it might mean for citizenry, what it might mean for family, and of course, for our various political disagreements, as well as for the character of the scientific enterprise itself given institutional controls. Aaron, uh, thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. I think your book is a very timely warning, and at the same time, it has a deep argument running through it about the character of American government and democracy, the American way of life, and the dangers it now faces in the light of great scholars like Augusto del Noche and uh, Giorgio Agamben in our times or the mid-century, or before that, Alexis de Tocqueville, of course. And so you bring both humanistic reflection and a reflection as an investigative journalist and in a way an actor in this drama. We'll get to your own experience, of course and your experience and expertise as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, as an ethicist in the profession. So it's a remarkable way of putting together a number of things that rarely come together and which we desperately need if we are to intelligently and in a dignified way fight off the claims of a kind of tyrannic, despotic expertise. So thank you for joining me on the podcast please uh, introduce yourself for our audience and uh, let's talk about your book The New Abnormal
1: Well thank you Titus for that kind introduction it's it's great to be with you here i look forward to our conversation And your ability to approach these issues at at a level of depth and understanding that is, you know, sometimes rare in our, our public discourse today. So I'm really excited about this podcast. So as you said, I'm I'm a psychiatric physician. I spent the majority of my career 15 years up until last December as a professor in the School of Medicine at the University of California, Irvine where I also directed the Medical Ethics Program. And I'll talk later in this episode probably about what happened to me there, but I am now a fellow and director of the Bioethics and American Democracy Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. I also have affiliations and appointments with other independent think tanks, including the Zephyr Institute and the Brownstone Institute, where I'm engaged in work on public policy, particularly healthcare-related public policy issues and the ethics of those issues. I maintain a small private practice as well, so I'm still a practicing psychiatrist. And I just published yesterday Uh, This book that you mentioned, The New Abnormal, the subtitle is The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And uh, you give a very kind uh, and generous framing of the book. So thank you for that that pitch. I'm excited about the book. I hope that it will be informative. It's not primarily a retrospective on the pandemic. I think we have a lot of those now that are coming out in print. Um, We do have to understand what happened during the pandemic to understand this new model of governance that I'm talking about in the book. But the book's primarily about our future. It's primarily about where this uh, biomedical security model, where this regime is going next, what are the next steps In that process that we should be aware of if we're going to resist, you know, increasingly authoritarian roles over our bodies, uh, intrusions into our privacy uh,
0: and so forth. Yes, indeed. And in a way, that's the question now and for the near future. Any claim of urgency and continued mandates has vanished or its legitimacy has vanished. But what do we do next time? What we'll do next winter, of course, and how will we proceed politically as a community? These are massive questions. The most recent formulation of A Way Forward was published in The Atlantic by a lady, a doctor, Emily Oster, that called for a kind of amnesty on the pandemic. It has been, so far as I'm aware, widely ridiculed on the center-right and the right in uh, American publishing. But I assume it has quite quite a lot of success on the center-left. Although, of course, it will not have any success on the progressive side. It seems to speak primarily to and about the views of a small but very influential elite class that is involved in policy, that is involved in, uh, of course, very remunerative jobs that college graduates tend to get in America And on behalf of this class, it seems to suggest that we have to put the past behind us and to keep silent, not just about who got things right and who got things wrong, but about who was wronged and who suffered, and also about who might be in charge next time as well. It's a remarkable piece for the position of arrogance, uh, not least since it doesn't really have a constituency, as I tried to lay out. But it, it has some veneer of reasonableness. This doctor was much less crazy than many others published in The Atlantic and the rest of the liberal press. She was much more intent on uh, keeping schools open than most liberal elites and institutions have been. And on the other hand, she was not quite as obsessed about forcing people to vaccinate or destroy their lives in that regard. So as close as elite liberal medical figures came to reasonableness, I think she got there too. It's a rare achievement in a way. But uh, as you say, we have to ask ourselves very seriously what has happened with a view to what will happen in future since all of the institutions, all of the organizations from the international level of WHO, World Health Organization, to, of course, the American situation, the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institute for Health, All of these things that come under health and human services, as well as related things from Homeland Security, DHS, and so on and so forth in the government, and also all the corporations involved and the social media aspect of this problem of governance, of policy, of public policy and health emergencies. All of this stuff is intact. Nobody has been held to account in any way. Doesn't look like anybody will be at least anytime soon. And so it seems like a reasonable amnesty actually smuggles in the notion that the people who treated America as their own despotic playground for the last couple of years will do so again and their heirs and all the people trained under them in this emergency will get to do it again next time. And so this is under the veneer, as I keep saying, of reasonableness, uh, a preparation and the justification for the despotism. I was very displeased with this and I thought, well, my friend Aaron has a very different experience of this matter and he has very different views of what constitutes a reasonable inquiry into our situation and our predicament.
1: So that's a very insightful framing of this proposal in the Atlantic that's got, gotten a lot of attention this week and my assessment is going to be similar to yours i'll say first as a roman catholic i'm i'm in favor of the idea of forgiveness and reconciliation at the individual level and the social level and we we absolutely are in a society right now that needs to heal where friendships were broken families were divided over covid policies many people were harmed, whether by the virus or by probably more often our collective response to the virus and our public health policies in response to the virus. So any proposal for reconciliation healing is something that I think we need to take seriously. But on the other hand, if we look at how this has been successfully done in other societies, where there were massive harms done, whether the apartheid system and South Africa, or certain genocidal outbursts of violence in African nations, the uh, what are sometimes termed truth and reconciliation commissions. When they're done right, they have to begin with truth. Right, reconciliation follows the acknowledgement of harm and the attempt to, to whatever degree possible, rectify some of those harms. Some of the harms will never be rectified. The harms of school closures on children will be felt for decades. Those are not years that those children are going to get back, even with remedial attention. When you interrupt childhood development in that massive way for a prolonged period of time, you don't get those developmental years or those experiences back. So not all of the harms can be rectified, but certainly people that lost their jobs based on arbitrary and capricious policies that actually didn't end up advancing public health goals. Vaccine mandates are a good example of a a policy that we now know didn't actually advance a public health goal. The vaccines were never capable of stopping infection and transmission, and most vaccinated people now have still gotten COVID. But nevertheless, people like me and tens of thousands of others have lost our jobs for refusing to comply with those mandates. So reconciliation, yes, but we have to start with truth and we have to start with attempts to rectify some of those wrongs. So I'm ready to forgive and I want to forgive uh, people who advanced harmful policies, but that means that they first need to stand up and acknowledge the harm that was done. And I have not heard that yet. So this amnesty proposal strikes me as, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I, I don't doubt that the author had was, was writing in good faith here, but it, it seems to propose a kind of sweeping under the rug of the harms. It seems to attempt to leapfrog over the truth part of truth and reconciliation and to give people that either knew better or should have known better a pass. I mean, you can look back and just listen to things that the talking heads were saying on TV vilifying the unvaccinated, claims that had absolutely no scientific basis, but claiming that the healthcare system was being overrun because of unvaccinated people and other people were not getting care because of unvaccinated people, none of which was true. This kind of othering, this dehumanizing of a segment of the population who is only trying to exercise uh, their civil and and human rights, only trying to claim the need for individualized patient care rather than a one-size-fits-all policy. Those folks are not going to be prepared to forgive until, at minimum, they receive a public apology from the same people that were vilifying them six months ago, a year ago. I'm glad that this piece is getting attention. I think uh, it should receive plenty of critical attention. My proposal is is going to be a yes, but. Yes, we can think about the idea of amnesty, if you want to call it that. I prefer the term forgiveness because, you know, forgiveness is different from just excusing. Excusing seems to suggest that no wrong was really done uh, or Any harms were only accidental and unintentional. Uh, Forgiveness is a much deeper process because forgiveness begins with the acknowledgement that I, in fact, have been harmed uh, by you and by by other people like you, and I'm ready to let go of any residual anger, hatred, resentment, strife, and maybe even kind of reestablish a, a, a relationship and a reconciliation process. But that's first going to require that you acknowledge that you, in fact, harmed me. And to whatever extent possible, you try to rectify those harms. And then then we can talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, or if you prefer the term,
0: we can talk about amnesty. Yes, indeed. And I'd like to add uh, some of the harms are still being perpetrated. There are still people who cannot go back to their jobs Because of mandates that didn't make that much sense and have since shown to be uh, quite arbitrary and in many cases cruel. And, And I think this gets us nicely around to your book because you have gone through this both as a health professional or however one will put it, a man with the experience and the education required to think about public health, but also as a citizen as a man active in uh, your community and indeed at the national at the state and national level in California and America trying to help with expert uh, testimony and of course with your own uh, activity to persuade people to stand up for their rights that they are right to do so and that they should not give up their judgment much less their liberties to this despotism so take us through some of your personal experience
1: So, as I mentioned earlier, I had spent my entire 15-year career at the University of California, where at the start of the pandemic, first of all, I I showed up to work every day during the pandemic, during lockdowns. I went to the hospital. I consulted in the ICU on on COVID cases. I contracted COVID in early 2020. Uh, As the chair of our medical ethics committee, I had countless conversations with families whose loved one was irretrievably dying uh, of COVID. And so I saw the worst that this illness can do. I was well aware of the risks to the elderly and the severely infirm if they caught this virus. At the same time, I was also involved in developing the university's policies around COVID from the ethically sensitive ventilator triage policy that we developed in 2020. We didn't run out of ventilators, never had to use that policy, fortunately. To uh, vaccine allocation policies early in the mass vaccination campaign, the questions of who should get the vaccine first were very pressing. But then the university published its vaccine mandate for all students, faculty and staff at the university without consulting the ethics and critical care committee that had developed all of the other COVID policies, uh, a committee that I served on. And I found that very puzzling. So I published a piece in 2021 in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates violated medical ethics. And I specified university mandates because those were the first institutions to roll out vaccine mandates. Businesses and other public agencies followed suit after that. But universities were the tip of the spear. And the University of California's was one of the first policies to be announced. Shortly after I published that piece and tried to get an open conversation going on our committee and at our university, the university unilaterally published and finalized its vaccine mandate. And I saw people at the university getting steamrolled by this policy. I saw the university refusing and declining uh, conscience-based objections or even medical exemptions and religious exemptions that had been submitted. So people's rights were clearly being violated. And I decided that I needed to put a stake in the ground. I was trying to project ahead to January, February of 2022, when I would have taught the required ethics course, as I did every year, to the first and second year medical students. And I couldn't imagine standing up and talking about the Nuremberg Code and the ethical principle of informed consent, or even talking about moral courage and integrity, right? Do the right thing under pressure. If you see patients being harmed, even though you're a medical student and there's a power differential, you have to... You have to stick your neck out and and say something or do something. I couldn't imagine doing that if I saw this really harmful policy at my own institution being rolled out and saw students, faculty, and staff being steamrolled by this policy. And in, in my position as the Director of Medical Ethics at the university, if I didn't stand up and do something, I just wouldn't have woken up with a clear conscience. So... I put a stake in the ground. I filed a case in federal court challenging the university's vaccine mandate on behalf of people like me who have natural immunity and arguing that our equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution were violated by this policy. That case, by the way, is still in federal court at the appellate level. But before uh, even the district court judge made a ruling on that case, the university proceeded very quickly to place me on unpaid suspension. That was one year ago yesterday, November 1st of last year. And then the following month in December of last year, the university fired me for alleged noncompliance with their vaccine mandate after they had twice rejected my medical exemption request. So, you know, one way to go sideways with your employer is is to sue them in federal court. So, it, what happened to me was no surprise, but the university reacted very quickly and refused to to work with me or to accommodate me in any way. I was willing to do things like, hey, put me on unpaid sabbatical for two years until the pandemic is over. You know, I, I was very flexible, you know, placed me on part time work from home, uh, you know, until the pandemic is over. I was I was willing to engage in a process that would not have required them to make a special exception for me. But, you know, after publicly challenging them in that way, they were they were in no mood to to work with me. So, that cost me my job. I I don't regret that decision at all. I think it was the right thing to do, but it, you know, it certainly changed my life this year in in important ways. And I was sort of pleased yesterday when I realized that the date of my book publication coincided with the one-year anniversary of being placed by the university on unpaid suspension. So God closed that door, but he's opened up other doors for me to continue doing my work this year, which has been edifying
0: and encouraging. I'm glad that uh, you have taken this firing and this uh, injustice in, 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 in such a good spirit. I think in a way it is an example and at the same time, uh, of course, there is no evidence that uh, the people who have committed these injustices against you feel the same. We are in this uh, troublesome situation where we have to make sure we do not hurry in, uh, to forgive people who don't even wish to stop committing these harms, much less to ask for forgiveness. And uh, that, of course, has uh, everything to do with the prestige of these institutions and the way in which so many of them bet on despotism backed by a claim of expertise that could allow no dissent and that reduced everybody uh, who disagreed not to equal citizens under the law who have the freedom to organize, who have the freedom to petition for of grievances, who have freedom of speech and who have their property rights and so on and so forth, but instead as people who have few or none, no citizen rights that apply and therefore who can be very easily fired or have their reputations destroyed or be silenced in the public sphere through technological censorship and so on and so forth. Uh, very quickly it emerged that uh, there are at least two different classes of Americans, and one of them is willing and able to use incredibly powerful institutions to silence the other. And I think your experience speaks to something that you deal very well with in chapter one in the book, the importance of academia, of these research universities, which get uh, massive grants from the state, of course, from the federal government, and which are at the same time involved in staffing the public health authorities in all levels of of, of the government in America. These were the tip of the spear in this new despotism. They trained themselves and their students. A generation of American medical students have been trained into these cruelties both as victims of them, in every way from uh, arbitrary mandates down to teaching kids to snitch on each other and threatening them with consequences if they don't. Uh, Therefore, also they are trained not merely as victims, but as perpetrators of these kinds of cruelties and in a way rendered unable to be fellow citizens with others since they cannot conceive from experience of a world of uh, equal rights, of equality under the law, the sorts of things that made you make your stand and join with your fellow citizens in standing up for you. Your rights and indeed have recourse to the law, to the courts. But this is not the experience of our experts from the level of the medical school student all the way to the experts who actually run massively powerful institutions. So maybe we can turn to that aspect to the medical schools and to the experts and uh, their pandemic war games and their recommendations for taking control of the population. And what is in practice, the biomedical security state?
1: So very well put. Thank you for that that framing of this question. What I call the biomedical security state in the New Abnormal book is uh, the simplest way to think about it is the unholy welding together of three key elements. The first is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And in the book, I describe 20-year history of war gaming pandemics, uh, these tabletop simulations that involve not just top leading public health officials and government officials internationally, but also key figures in the military and intelligence community. So an increasingly militarized model of public health welded to digital technologies of surveillance and control right? The iPhone was invented in 2007. This is the first pandemic of the digital age of the technological age. And I describe in the book, in some detail, some of the developments that most folks are still not aware of in terms of how digital technologies were used to control and manage populations, whether through the control of information and the collusion of government with big tech to censor information that criticized any pandemic policies, but also through actually mass surveillance of populations, warrantless backdoor searches of Americans' information. So Israel, we know in uh, 2021 during the Omicron wave, Israel's version of the CIA was permitted with emergency legislation to extract track and trace data from citizens' phones without their consent to monitor and track Uh, citizens' movements during Omicron and supposedly to help the government get a handle on how that variant was spreading through the population. That was at least done publicly. You could read about it in the New York Times The duly elected legislators in Israel voted to have that in place and the public could be aware of what they had done. But we learned a couple of months later that Canada had actually done the same thing without a public vote, even with actually Justin Trudeau a few months prior reassuring the Canadian population that they would not extract track and trace data from uh, citizen cell phones without their consent. They did it anyway. And then Vice broke the story earlier this year that the CDC had done exactly the same thing, again, without the consent or even the knowledge of the American populace. And the CDC spokesperson admitted at that time that they were planning to use that data set on into 2026 for other public health applications. Many of those applications really stretching the definition of what counts as public health, monitoring people's movements at schools and churches and so forth. And supposedly that bulk data was anonymized. But researchers at Princeton showed that it could very easily be de-anonymized with only four data points you could, with 99.8% accuracy, you could identify the person that that you know, anonymous number was, uh, was associated with. So th- this level of, this granular level of tracking people's movements, of monitoring uh, their, their personal information, took a big step forward during the pandemic. And it's going to continue. Two of the things that are coming down the pike which I try to draw people's attention to in chapter three of the book that are sort of the next step in the advance of the biomedical security state are digital IDs tied to biometric data and central bank digital currencies. And we can get into how those are going to function maybe later in the conversation. So that's the second element of the biosecurity state, that militarized public health combined with digital technologies of surveillance and control and all of that backed by the police powers. Of the state. This model of not just a model of public health, but I argue that it's a novel model of government governance and a novel model of uh, controlling populations. This has actually been in the works for 20 years. So, as I drilled down and dug into not just what happened to us during the pandemic, but more importantly, why, these were very harmful policies. They didn't advance their own public health goals. They were presented with barely a pretense of scientific justification with really shoddy evidence and really shoddy reasoning. And yet they they advanced and, and stayed in place for a long period of time anyway. So the, the obvious question is why? Right? Who benefited from this? Where did it come from? So I dig into the 20-year history, which I argue started shortly after 9-11, of the advance of this biosecurity model in the thinking of administrative state actors from national security agencies to the military, to our three-letter public health agencies. This has actually been percolating in, in the works for about two decades. It manifested itself during the pandemic, but it didn't It didn't come out of nowhere. So I think to, to understand the biosecurity state, it was necessary to dig into that 20-year history and then to show how what had been prepared for two decades basically utilized the COVID pandemic as an opportunity to advance much further and faster than it would have been able to do uh, in sort of ordinary peace times or than it would have been able to do without the legal mechanism of the declared state of emergency that we're still laboring under at the federal level. Right? Biden announced last month that the pandemic was over on 60 Minutes, which was true. In fact, it's been over for quite a while now. But his advisors immediately reacted with a kind of panic and said, no, 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 you can't say that. Well, why can't you say that? Well, if the pandemic is over, then there's no justification for the state of emergency at the federal level that has been renewed every 90 days for the last several years to almost no media attention. During a declared state of emergency, the president himself gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he would have to relinquish if the state of emergency was no longer in place. All of the vaccines which were approved under emergency use authorization would no longer be able to be used because the EUA only applies to medications or vaccines during a state of emergency. So there's political and financial and economic interests at work in both what happened to us and in maintaining that permanent state of emergency or finding a new public health justification to you know, jump from one public health emergency to the next. We've seen efforts to, you know, both latch on to the monkeypox outbreaks, but also to redefine other issues as public health issues. So even starting prior to the pandemic, if you read headlines carefully on climate change, and, you know, bracket for a moment the debates about climate change and what should be done about climate change, but just the way that climate change has been framed in the mainstream media, it's shifted from an environmental issue to a public health issue. And there are serious proposals from you know academics at Ivy League universities and politicians in power to deploy things like rolling lockdowns to deal with the the climate crisis, right? to declare climate change a public health. Not just a public health issue, but a public health crisis for which radical, stringent, immediate measures like lockdowns are necessary to get a handle on. People in Europe have proposed, politicians in Europe have proposed the idea of lockdowns to deal with the energy crisis there. So all of this infrastructure that was put in place during the pandemic, what I've described as the biomedical security state, even though some of the specific policies have been rolled out, very few jurisdictions are using vaccine passports anymore, for example. But that infrastructure is still in place, and it's ready and waiting for the next declared state of emergency, whether it's a real virus, a computer virus, uh, or another issue like climate and energy. It's waiting there, ready to be deployed during the next emergency. And we've developed this model of governance that really requires jumping from one emergency to the next in order to maintain certain powers that governors and presidents and public health officials and unelected bureaucrats wouldn't otherwise have or would would
0: have to relinquish. Yes, indeed. Uh, Somehow it has, has ended up, as you suggested, escaping public attention that the country is governed under a state of emergency. And at least at elite level, the opinion is that the country is otherwise ungovernable. The only way America can go on is if the administrative decisions that have been made continue and new ones are made to deal with the problems caused by the previous ones. The emergency in that sense creates its own further emergencies. Everything from eviction moratoria, which apparently end up being under the control of the CDC, supposedly a health authority, and then with no power of governing, merely a a power of issuing uh, consultations, opinions. Uh, advice to the government not control of the country's tenants and uh, landlords but from the eviction moratoria to who knows how many other things the country is governed thus because experts believe it cannot be governed otherwise and whether that's arrogance despair ignorance or all three all of the above yeah yeah it's it's uh The way things are now to to declare amnesty would be to say that this form of government is the right form of government. And that for the most part, American citizens claiming their rights or claiming that the government should be done with consent of the governed, expressed through an act of the will, through voting, uh, this is nonsense. It may be decorative. It may have a psychologically soothing role as as with babies, but uh, it is not how the country really works and it's not how the world works. The world must work through these administrative agencies that, whether or not have the knowledge, they are certainly very willing and able to use the power of the state and indeed are not going to relinquish it. None of these people are getting fired. None of these people are admitting any fault. Whatever mistakes have been made uh, will have to be hushed up. And indeed, the things that were impossible to say last year or you'd get fired for it are now okay to say by the kinds of people who wanted uh, people fired last year with no acknowledgement of the changes. And further, that also means that the authority under which all of these things have been done will continue. The only condition considered necessary, apparently, is that people forget, is that Americans stop noticing that everything from rent whether you have a right to work, is controlled by a health authority that has no such constitutional rights. It's uh, astonishing, but here we are now. So as you say, these things in some ways have stopped and in some ways have not. But all the people and all the procedures are still in place. And looking forward to the next thing. I think it's worth insisting on the fact that from the point of view of ordinary people, in a time of emergency, some things might have to be done because they're necessary. They're not just, they might cause trouble to any man of conscience, but they are necessary in a crisis. There are cases of catastrophe, would say natural evils rather than human or political evils. But you can also look at this situation not from the point of view of the ordinary man, but from the point of view of a certain kind of expert, from the point of view that you identify with a kind of instrumentalized rationality that seeks to use everything, including human beings, as instruments, and say that, well, we have had one pandemic, and if we have dealt with it badly, that is not proof that the experts are wrong, that is proof that they need even more power than than we have given them, because surely there will be another pandemic, and when there will be another pandemic, there will be another panic, and therefore control must be taken of the population in advance of the event. People must be prepared for the next pandemic. We must think of these events as crisis events, as moments when human nature fails, and when only the artifices of technology and political technologies, our administrative institutions and procedures and expert classes, only they can be relied upon. They might not be great, but they're the only thing we've got. And so they should gradually come to rule over ordinary life, which is, after all, only the preamble to those extraordinary moments of terror. Right. And in that right. way, you gradually come to normalize reasoning about terror. You refer to Giorgio Agamben, whose fame has been restored terribly, but in a way rightly by this crisis, since he has worried more about their life, the the, the reduction of human beings to mere bodies to be controlled by the government for our own good, and uh, to Augusto del Noche and uh, other intellectuals, of course, C.S. Lewis. Let's talk a bit uh, about this deeper, more intellectual level, since policies change and people tend to forget about what this guy is doing or what that guy is doing. In a certain way, nobody can really think that uh, this Fauci guy exists. It's he, he he was on TV for a while, and for some he was a villain, and for some he was a hero. And everyone seems to have forgotten about him, however. If he really yeah, was he... their saint or their devil, they should still remember him, but mostly people have forgotten and yeah. so it, it it's worth looking at this, not merely through the exigencies of the moment, but also at a, a deeper intellectual level to look at what's happening to our society, that these things should happen. How do we diagnose our ills, so to speak, which have been exploited by this level of despotism?
1: Yeah, so there's, as you mentioned, there's several sections in the book where in order to really help readers understand not just what's happening, but why. It it required a bit of a deeper philosophical dive or a dive into issues related to political theory. And I drew upon many of the thinkers that you've mentioned. I'll, I'll mention just one section, one example, where I draw heavily on the work of this Italian philosopher, Augusto del Noce. And that's in the section of the book titled Follow the Scientism. And I begin by distinguishing scientism from science. Science is a method or better, a collection of methods for investigating the natural world that is open-ended, that is uh, skeptical in, in the sense of always being open to new information and new data, being able to sort of revise our positions based on evidence. And it requires and utilizes ongoing debate and argument. Science is about hypothesis, conjecture, refutation, discussion, revision. You take a group of a dozen real scientists working on similar problems, you put them in a room together, what are they gonna do? They're not gonna agree with each other. They're gonna argue endlessly about the subtleties of these findings, about the methods of this study, about the upshot or the overall interpretation of their body of research as a whole. And that argument is a good thing. That's how science advances and progresses when it's functioning in the way that it should. Scientism, on the other hand, is is an ideology that attempts to weaponize science for political and social purposes. Uh, It begins with a claim, first of all, that science is the only valid form of knowledge. So it attempts to gain a monopoly on what counts as reasonable. So ethical claims, metaphysical claims, religious claims, claims from other quote unquote non-scientific disciplines are just ruled out of public conversation entirely. They're, they're by definition, irrational, unprovable, nonsensical, and we don't have to even deal with them. But this monopolistic or indeed this totalitarian conception of science also allows those in power to anoint the experts that they want to elevate and to sideline people with expertise that they don't want to listen to, so they can hide behind experts with, uh, you know, a particular individual claiming to represent the science, capital T, capital S, trademarked, right? I am the science, and contradicting my opinion or my view is to contradict the science. No credible scientist ever talks in this way. This is a person who is in the grip of this ideology of. Scientism. And the reason I say that scientism is totalitarian, and in fact, I draw on Del Noche's thoughts about this. He recognized and, and described scientism as totalitarian 50 years ago, you know, far in advance of the biomedical security state. But he, he saw how the underlying logic functioned in the same way as the logic of the 20th century totalitarianism. All of the totalitarianisms of the 20th century rested on pseudoscience, but claimed to be scientific, whether it was the pseudoscience of race and eugenics for the Nazi regime or the pseudoscience of the Marxist dialectic of history in the communist regimes. And scientism basically does the same thing by claiming that science is the only valid form of knowledge, which is not a scientific finding. It's a metaphysical claim smuggled through the back door that that has to hide itself, basically. The totalitarian regimes claimed a monopoly on rationality by basically saying, if you're not on board with our program, it's because you're ignorant of the Marxist dialectic of history or the science of of race. And we don't have to argue with you. We don't have to debate with you. We just place you outside the realm of rationality. You know, you're just in the grip of bourgeois consciousness or, you know, Jew consciousness or, you know, whatever. Well, scientism does the exact same thing. Uh, people in the grip of scientism don't debate even science, right? They just claim a monopoly on knowledge. And instead of having a nuanced, open discussion and debate about the empirical evidence, they simply place anyone who disagrees with them outside the realm of rationality, of rational conversation. And then we're allowed to just steamroll those people. We can vilify them. We can exclude them. We can fire them from their jobs. Uh, all in the name of, quote-unquote, the science, without ever having to have a meaningful co- public conversation on the empirical evidence itself. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that scientism is a totalitarian conception of science and a an ideology that will lead in a totalitarian direction because the underlying logic is, in fact, the same. Eric Vogelin, the the great political theorist of the last century who studied the totalitarian systems of the 20th century said that the, the central feature of totalitarianisms is not concentration camps or secret police or mass surveillance, as horrible as all those things are. Those are the things we tend to think of when we hear the word totalitarian. He said those are not the central features. The central feature of totalitarian systems is the forbidding of certain questions inability to ask certain questions, to pose certain questions, is what gives a totalitarian ideology its power. And those prohibitions are, are eventually internalized by, by citizens as such that after a certain period of time, certain questions no longer even occur to people, right? And this is, this is the difference between a totalitarian system and a dictatorship. Dictatorships rule externally by force and through fear. And we saw plenty of that happening during the pandemic. But totalitarian systems are even more frightening, and they're even more of a prison for the human mind and human rationality and freedom because the the interdicts or the prohibitions in a perfectly totalitarian state are eventually internalized by the people themselves. People start self-policing. They start self-censoring. They start ratting out their neighbor who had a thought or expressed an idea that contradicted the regime. So eventually, the the men in jackboots and the concentration camps are no longer necessary because everyone has absorbed the ideology to the point where dissident questions or dissident ideas no longer even occur to them. That is the ultimate prison. Uh, That's the ultimate direction that totalitarian systems are, are trying to move
0: populations in. Indeed, think- we have some kind of attack on freedom in pretty much every way we have understood it up until now, whether it's uh, merely personal freedom in relation to private life or freedom in the sense of your rights and power to be active in the community, in politics, to express your opinion or indeed organize on the basis of shared opinions, and as well as religious liberty and everything else we have come to consider our rights is to some extent in jeopardy, to some extent under attack. And your book does a lot to explain how to think about these attacks in terms of the claim of this scientism, of the class that puts it forward in government as well as in corporations, in private life as well as in public life, in education, not just in politics or and policy. The claim that somehow despotism is more rational That freedom is a kind of madness, that the people who oppose the various mandates and emergencies are not just wrong, but they are too stupid to be considered as as right or wrong, and that their suffering is therefore their own fault. That is to say, to, to disagree with this demand for obedience is to be put below the level at which you may obey or disobey. You may argue or disagree. So obedience becomes the only rational response that is acceptable. And as a consequence, as you suggest, even asking yourself questions, even wondering about things, having doubts, becomes a dangerous game. So we are in trouble with our elites. Uh, Our elites are very dissatisfied with us and contemplate and sometimes enact all sorts of things that they, until recently at least, would not have publicly voiced. Now they are not only publicly voicing them, but sometimes actually enacting them. We have, in a way, still our freedom of speech and our property rights. It is still possible to speak to some extent. One speaks freely and that uh, about these matters, as you do in your book. But of course, even this is limited. After all, you got fired, as did so many other people, for expressing opinions that are not only legal, but commonsensical.
1: Titus, I want to tell an anecdote that I think perfectly illustrates what you were just talking about in in regards to the attitude of our elites. I'll, I'll never forget this. This was when our committee at the university was working on our pandemic triage policy or ventilator triage policy. Obviously, a publicly sensitive policy. If if worse came to worse and we ran out of ventilators, how do we allocate them to save the most lives? Who gets priority? Very difficult question to answer ethically. And there were two members of our committee, myself and and another member, who were advocating that we try to draw on publicly available information, public resources, and, you know, in, in the absence of time to do surveys and focus groups and so forth, any prior triage policies that had drawn upon those kinds of resources, we should look to, in, in other words, we should let the public give input in regards to these values and priorities. We should pay attention to actually not just what the quote unquote experts, right, the people in this star chamber or the people on our committee think about these questions, but what the public as a whole thinks about these questions. And we got a lot of pushback. We had people saying, no, we are the experts and we should decide You know these, these vexing questions about prioritization. And at one point we were, myself and this other member, were making this argument that in a democratic regime, we should operate when devising a policy that's going to potentially affect everyone. California. We should try to operate in a democratic way and with it's responsive to the will of the people. And I'll ne- I'll never forget the university's general counsel, and lawyer at the entire UC system, said, "Yeah, but look where democracy got us," referring to the election of Donald Trump in 2016, uh, Brexit, other things that our elites, you know, decry as populism run. A buck, but look where our democracy got us it was a moment where this woman, I think, represents generally elite opinion, uh, sort of tipped her hand. So there is this battle now between democracy and technocracy, technocracy being the rule by, uh, quote unquote, experts or self-appointed experts or people who know better because they went to an Ivy League university or because they run a multinational Corporation, or because they're in a position of power. And this is the attitude. It's, It's actually quite condescending. It's another example of an attempt to monopolize rationality and to condescendingly claim that ordinary people don't have the wits or the logic or the sense enough to govern themselves or to give input into important matters of public consequence. And I think this is a very, very dangerous idea, this technocracy, which is and technocracy is the p- political logic behind what I describe as the biomedical security state. So I, I spend some time in the new abnormal trying to unpack not just how this ideology works, but specific examples of how it worked during the pandemic. But, you know, I, I would echo w- William F. Buckley Jr., who quipped uh, several decades ago that he would rather be governed by the first hundred names in the Boston phone book than by the faculty at Harvard University, that this kind of elite disdain for the experience of ordinary people is not a manifestation of wisdom, in fact. And I think Americans, as part of our efforts to resist the new abnormal, we have to reclaim our right to have opinions. We have to stop self-censoring. We have to stop being cowed by people who claim to be experts you may not be an expert in epidemiology you may not be an expert in virology but you are in possession of a shared rationality that all normally functioning human beings have you have you're in possession of logic you're in possession of common sense you can spot a logical contradiction you can see when a certain conclusion doesn't follow from certain premises you can just through your own experience observe and see harms that are done by certain public policies, you know that it there, there could not possibly be any scientific justification for a policy that says you have to walk into a restaurant wearing a mask, and then when you sit down, you can take off the mask. This kind of theatrics that we willingly engaged in, that every sane person knew made absolutely no sense. Uh, you know, we when we give in on small things like that. It prepares the ground for us giving in on bigger things when more consequential rights and freedoms are abrogated. So so reclaiming our shared rationality, our common sense, our ability to have opinions, form opinions, and to govern ourselves is really important right now, I think, for all of us in the supposedly democratic West so that we halt the slouch toward technocracy that was advanced massively during the last three years.
0: Yes, indeed. And your book is all about helping us see what has been happening, who is doing it, why it has been happening. And therefore, as you say in the title of your fourth chapter, Reclaiming Freedom, How to, to, to Advance Human Flourishing in a More Rooted Future. This is ultimately what this is about, improving our situation, facing up to our predicament, It is not about being pessimistic. It's about being informed if we are to consent to government. After all, in government, as with medicine, informed consent is the only way in which we can do this business of living together decently, intelligently. And so I I hope our audience has seen that this is the the one book to read on this issue, on how to think about the pandemic in its humanistic wholeness, in its political aspects and intellectual aspects with respect to medicine, but also with respect to morality. I hope uh, people will be uh, interested and they'll go buy it. You can get the book anywhere you buy books from. It just came out yesterday and I am happy to be here interviewing my friend Aaron. I think everyone can see your public record since you have gone on the record as a citizen standing up for human freedom, for The rights that all Americans uh, think they should enjoy and to some extent enjoy, but not unless they defend them. And uh, so I think it is no flattery to say that you have proven your integrity and your courage and therefore deserve a hearing. But I think you've also shown that you have the learning and the reflection. You can say that uh, these people have denied you a public standing in firing you, but in a way liberated you to reflect and to work for the public good as a writer. And I'm glad to see that when one avenue for fighting for our rights has been denied, do you find another one? This, I think, uh, is encouraging. It certainly encouraged me. And uh, so I hope it will have the same effect on our audience. Aaron, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I hope this book uh, achieves the success it deserves and in a way the success we need it to have if uh, we are to stand up for ourselves seriously.
1: Thank you, Titus. Uh, it's been I've really enjoyed this opportunity to talk with you about the book, the themes from the book and to speak to your audience. And I hope your audience enjoys the podcast. I hope they benefit from the
0: book. Uh, All right, uh, Aaron, we'll have to have you back on uh, PomoCon on the podcast again soon enough as as, as your book tour goes on. All the best until then. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to the next time.